that I'll call your attention to. One is the Women's Conference on August 12th. There's now flyers for that at the welcome desk, and you need to RSVP. Women are encouraged to go. It was a great event last year um, over at Bethany. Uh, RSVP, either talk to Laura or you can contact Lori Sass directly, and that information is on that flyer. And then, of course, I see them sitting there, and I don't always announce it in advance, but next weekend is a, is a busy weekend. So not only will VBS start, which a number of you are now VBS experts after the meeting this morning, and that's an exciting time for the church, but we'll also have the baptism of Cody and Courtney sitting there this morning. So they may be the only who get baptized with uh, spacemen and spaceships surrounding them on stage or whatever we have as they weave their way in there. But uh, we're always reminded we stand in a long line of the reformers who said, you know a true church where the word of God is preached and heard and where the church administers the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper and according, with Christ, according to Christ's word. So we take great joy in being able to celebrate that. Well, let's continue worship this morning. I actually called an audible, so you guys have Psalm 105 listed there. We're actually going to turn to Psalm 103 instead. It's, it's been an interesting week, those of you who follow the, the prayer requests uh, with Kim Dummermuth, and I'd encourage you to keep praying for him and that family, and then there's some others in our congregation dealing with uh, issues that are, are just as challenging as that, and as I was going back and forth this morning with them in the hospital, I, I decided to go to Psalm 103 because it's such a beautiful psalm, it, it reminds us in verses 13 and 14 that our Father in heaven does show compassion, unbelievable compassion for us as his children in Christ Jesus, and he knows our frame. He knows that we are created from dust, and we'll return there one day, but we will return to him in heaven, and so it's such a wonderful, wonderful psalm to point to the forgiveness offered through Jesus. So let's read Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with the steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments." 
The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we gather today as your children, adopted by faith through Christ Jesus, and we come to bless you, to praise you, and we pray that your name would be glorified above all names today through our singing, through the preaching, through our listening, through our lives. Lord, we pray that during this time that our focus would be on you, that by your spirit in our hearts we would be open to see your goodness, your beauty, your glory, that we would be inspired to live for our Lord Jesus and that we would speak boldly in his name. Father, we lift up those who are suffering today. We pray especially for those like Kim in the hospital. We pray that you would bring healing and wisdom to the doctors. We're thankful, Lord, that you've given us this time to live in where care is abundantly available. But more importantly, Lord, we thank you for the salvation that comes through your son. That we live in a day when we can look back and we can look to him and we can throw ourselves at the foot of the cross and know that your steadfast love is so great. Your mercy abounds and the forgiveness for all sins and any sin is available to those who will simply turn and follow him. Lord, we pray that you would be glorified this morning and that you would indeed glorify yourself, that your spirit would be active among us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, worship team. I, I love that line and that song, yet not I, but Christ in me. Such a powerful reminder. We're going to return to Acts chapter 3 this morning. As you turn there, you know, living in the West as we do, the United States in particular, most of all us have experienced blessing in life that not everybody actually gets to receive. And it's something simple. We know what it's like to be full. We know what it's like to have our hunger completely satisfied, to be sitting around a table and know what it feels like to say, no, thank you, I'm full, I can't eat another bite. And most of us just take that for granted. And yet I know every one of you, if you had food and you walked into a room full of hungry and starving people, you would never let them go hungry, not at your expense. You would feed them. Spiritually, we have the same issue. We have been very blessed in this country with over 200 years of freedom. Nearly everyone has access to a Bible. They're free on your phone. And we're free to openly read Scripture, to study God's Word, to gather together, to worship Christ, to build one another up in the faith. And yet, if you look across America, that prosperity, that freedom has not led to greater devotion to Jesus Christ. True biblical evangelical Christians represent, according to surveys, somewhere in the 10% or less range of Americans. So what that means is that every room that you and I walk into actually is filled with spiritually starving people, spiritually hungry people. And yet we've got the food to feed them. We have the word of God. God warned through the prophet Amos that, behold, the days are coming, he said, When I will send a famine on the land, and it won't be a famine of bread or a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. And that is what we can take to the world. There's this old saying, and all of you have heard this before, as Christians we can say, I am nothing more but one beggar 
showing another beggar the only place to find bread, right? And Jesus, of course, used that analogy many times. He said in John 6, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. So the question is always, well, how will this lost and dying world be saved? How will our family and our friends be saved? How will the spiritually starving be fed manna from heaven? And we know the answer. Right? Only by turning from sin and believing in Christ, Romans 10 asks and answers that all-important question, how will they believe if they've never heard? And then it gives us the answer, we must go, because faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And so we return to Peter and John this morning in Acts chapter 3, and they're standing now in the midst of a spiritually starving people a very religious people, but trapped in a religion that cannot save them. They're stuck with ritual, and Peter will instead proclaim Jesus Christ, and he'll proclaim that to a people who have openly rejected Jesus, and he's doing that in a temple setting that is very hostile to the saving gospel of Jesus. We have to remember that because they really didn't have it easier than we do. In fact, I would say it was harder because we know how this ends. They will preach Jesus Christ, and when you hit the end of that sermon, they're actually going to be arrested for it. We don't have that fear, thankfully. And so as we move into this sermon, you will see that Peter is direct, and he is bold in confronting their sin and their guilt before God, and he does that for a reason. It's compassion, because where there is recognition of sin, there is abundant mercy and forgiveness that is available by faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus said, whoever is forgiven much loves much. Calvin wrote, men will never worship God with a sincere heart or be roused to fear and obey him with sufficient zeal and enthusiasm until they properly understand how much they are indebted to God's mercy for forgiving them their sins and reconciling them to God in Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to see this morning. So we'll turn to our text. We'll start in verse 11. And we'll just remember, we won't go back and read it, that this crowd has gathered because they have just witnessed a miracle, a miracle performed by Jesus through the apostles, Peter and John, and it attested to the world that they were speaking with God's authority, and they were drawing a crowd. Verse 11 says, while he, this now healed man, clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one. And asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And by and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you now who you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. 
Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him first to you to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your word. We pray this morning that your spirit would open our eyes and open our hearts to the glorious truths that you reveal to us. Teach us, guide us, show us the way to go. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the setting for this sermon kind of takes us back quickly to the setting for this whole episode, which starts with the church at the end of chapter 2. And we see, of course, that the church fed on the Word of God. They worshiped together. They fellowshiped closely with one another. And importantly, they were motivated to obey the Lord Jesus Christ, His commission to go out and share this amazing truth of His mercy and grace with the unbelieving world. To proclaim to everyone, if they would just believe, if they would just turn away from sin and follow the Lord Jesus Christ, a person could know forgiveness. They could know eternal life. And so this is where we picked up with Peter and John. They walked into the crowd of Jews that were heading into the temple. And these Jews were going there not only to worship, but this afternoon service was the time where they would sacrifice a lamb. And that's what they were putting their faith in. And so sometimes we forget the courage that it would take for Peter and John, because as they went to a people who were trusting in that, they were about ready to proclaim to all the people who were placing their faith in this ritual that the once-for-all sacrifice had already been made, that Jesus, God the Son in the flesh, was the Messiah. He is the Christ, and He has come to save the people from their sins, and that salvation comes by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And so they call the people to turn away from everything else and turn to Jesus so they could know true and everlasting forgiveness and life. And they were going to do that to a people that they knew denied that message because they had denied Jesus. They denied that he was truly God and that he was truly man. And they denied that he was the Christ. So as they walked in, in God's providence, they encountered a 40-year-old man who was born lame. He had never stood. He had never walked. And they said, by the name of Jesus, right, stand and walk. And he was healed. And we looked last week. The name of Jesus refers, it's just shorthand, right? It refers to his life, his death, his resurrection, his perfection, his holiness, his divinity, the fact that he is the Christ. And by that, this man was healed, and everyone saw it. They knew this man, and now they gathered around Peter and John at Solomon's portico. This is an expansive area of the temple grounds, and the apostles had been there many, many times before. A lot of teaching took place there. In fact, they had been there not long ago, not long before this, with Jesus. We read in John chapter 10, it was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. This is the same place. 
So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. That seems like they want to know, but he does tell them plainly. He makes it very clear in no uncertain terms. Jesus tells them that he and the Father are one, that he is the eternal Son of God come in the flesh to save people, and that by faith in him you can be forgiven of sins. You can be made new. You can be reconciled to God. And though they'd asked for the answer, unbelief was prevalent. And Jesus said, I told you, and yet you do not believe. And their reaction was an interesting one. The whole episode closed where it says the Jews picked up stones to stone him. Now Jesus walked away, but why? Why did they reject Jesus? They'd asked the question. They'd got the answer. They'd seen the miracles. They heard the teaching. That's the same reason the world rejects Jesus today. Because though Jesus saves, people don't actually want to be freed from sin. They want a mixture. They want Christ and sin. They, they want sin and salvation. They reject Christ because they want the, the love, the, the forgiveness, but they can't accept the Son of God who came to confront sin and deliver them from it, to make them new in life. It's a very difficult truth, but it's one Jesus put this way in John 3. He said, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things actually hates the light, does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. And it's a timeless truth, and none of us like it when we feel convicted of our sins. So Peter now starts to preach to this crowd. And we see in his sermon that he is building toward the promise, the promise of salvation that comes through Jesus. And even though these people, even though the world doesn't think it needs deliverance from sin, he concludes this way, that God sent Jesus to bless us by turning every one of us from our wickedness. That is a work he will do. So the progression of this sermon is quite simple. It just follows right along from the problem that Peter lays out, the promise that is in Jesus Christ, and the prophecy fulfilled. It's not quite that simple because all these things get intertwined. And we're only going to see the problem this morning, and we'll finish it next week. And that doesn't sound very inspiring, I know. Let's do a sermon about the problem. But bear with me. Because keep in mind that while God condemns sin, it's always in the context of calling us to turn to Jesus. It's always in the context of calling people to avail ourselves of his saving grace. Because his promise is true. And it cannot be unbroken. And he has spoken and he said in John chapter 6, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. So the promise and the problem go hand in hand. Peter starts his sermon, really where all biblical preaching and all evangelism and all true gospel proclamation really must start. It's a place that makes us uncomfortable. It's a place that would have made the crowd uncomfortable. It is a reminder that all people stand guilty because of sin in front of God. Now, most of us don't love that. Most of us know someone, or maybe it's even us, who will avoid going to the doctor because we fear the diagnosis. We don't really want to hear. The family history of the problem is there. Everybody can see the symptoms, but we avoid going to the doctor because we're convinced that if we don't get the diagnosis, then we avoid the disease. 
but, not by, but by not confronting it, we all know how this plays out, right? We never actually treat the cause. And so we allow the sickness to grow and we allow it to spread until it consumes our bodies. And the same is true with sin. You can't ignore it. It will snowball. It will grow. But many people will try to ignore it. They'll avoid the truth of Scripture. They'll stay away from the church. They'll find friends that will comfort them in a life of sin that will ignore the spiritual disease. But Peter doesn't allow that. He's like the doctor that doesn't wait for you to make an appointment. He comes barging through your door to give the diagnosis. And the diagnosis he gives is very clear. And it's been the same for all time. Isaiah says it this way, your sins have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. And then Peter will point to the cure, right? Repent and believe in Jesus because as Colossians said, Jesus has now reconciled you to God by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. We all know the problem. The problem is stated so clearly in Scripture, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But that's what makes the gospel good news, right? That's what makes it good news because Jesus is the one who delivers us from that. The following verses in Romans say that for those who believe in Jesus, we're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. We don't have to do anything. We just have to turn and believe. Now, before Peter gets really going here, he's got to shift the attention of the crowd. He's got to get them listening to him and get their minds and hearts in the right place. So in verse 12, he says, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made this man walk? Now, we naturally have a bit of fascination with people, right? We're in a celebrity culture, so we really do, right? We like people and we look to people who do amazing things or who are particularly gifted, and the same thing's going on here with a little bit of a difference. See, the Jews knew only God could do miracles. You see this when Nicodemus approaches Jesus in John 3, where he comes to him because he knows that the works of God are being performed by him. But... These men, had already acted, these men had already denied that Jesus was the Son of God. So what do you do? You look to the men instead. And keep in mind, what they're looking at is two fishermen from Galilee. They're looking at two fishermen from Galilee, and they're amazed by the power of these apostles. So some were concluding they must have special power. Some were concluding it's because of their piety. Right? It was because of their godliness, their holiness. They must obey all the right rules, and so now they can act for God and possess this power. Now, many in the apostles' shoes would likely be tempted to go in a bit different direction with this sermon than Peter went. Right? Maybe turn it into a testimonial service. Talk about how Jesus had called us, we answered, listen to how he worked in our lives, or let's get the man on stage and talk to him about this amazing transformation. But Peter does something different because Peter knows God's mercy. Peter knows firsthand the mercy and grace extended to him because he was a one-time denier of Jesus Christ, and he is now standing boldly to proclaim the gospel. He truly is that one beggar trying to show these other beggars where to find bread. So he's not interested in self-promotion. Instead, he does the opposite. He mimics another man of God, John the Baptist. You know, John the Baptist baptizing in the wilderness attracted many, many people, but then Jesus came. And all the crowds started going there, and his disciples got jealous. 
And they came to John and told him, and John said, this joy of mine is now complete. People aren't following me, they're following Jesus. This joy of mine is complete. He must increase, I must decrease. See, there's no greater joy than pointing the spiritually dead to the source of life and seeing them embrace and follow Jesus Christ. Peter's preaching to Jews. Don't forget where we're at in Acts. The gospel has not yet gone outside of Jerusalem. So he's talking to Jews and he begins, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers. Now that's the way God identifies himself. You see it in Exodus 3 and you see it throughout Scripture. But Peter's doing this to remind the people of God's covenant, his promise with them. And in doing that, he's reminding them that God never wavers. God never fails to fulfill his promises. And by drawing them there, he points out that it was in the Abrahamic covenant that God promised Israel in your offspring. That it doesn't come across well in English. That is a singular. In your offspring, in one person who will be descended from the line of Abraham, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Now that is a point we'll come back to next week. But Peter gives an absolute hint of where he's going with that. Because he says, God glorified his servant, Jesus. God glorified his servant, Jesus. They were waiting for a Messiah who would immediately come in and restore Israel to power, who would be king. But Jesus came saying this, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life for a ransom for many. Peter is saying this servant, Jesus, God glorified, a servant is a common way of referring to the Messiah in the Old Testament. And these people, remember, knew their Bibles. They were in the temple. They had gone to the synagogues. They'd heard the readings. And it would clearly draw any of these faithful Jews toward the servant songs of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 42, for example, begins, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit on him. And we know that was true of Jesus. But Peter is pointing them to something a little bit different here, the exaltation of Jesus. Yes, he was a servant, and yes, he suffered, but he had been glorified. After that suffering, he had been placed over all rulers. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. The one who came as a servant has now been glorified and exalted at the Father's right hand. And that was a fulfillment of the promises made long ago about the Messiah. And the language Peter is using here would draw them to Isaiah 52, 13, all the way through 53. We won't read that whole thing. We do every year on Christmas Eve. It it begins this way, though. This is why it draws them there. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. And if you go through the rest of that passage, it speaks of the servant, Jesus' perfect life, his suffering and rejection by the people, and the fact that he made the once-for-all sacrifice, the atoning sacrifice for the sins of all who will turn to him. Isaiah 53, 5 says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement, the punishment that brought us peace with God. By his wounds, we are healed. Peter's drawing them there because Peter is teaching this crowd who knows the Old Testament, who knows the Bible, that this Jesus who's been glorified is the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior. And that's the main point of his entire sermon. Jesus is the Christ, and he is the only way. Turn to him, be saved, be forgiven. 
Now, all of that seems pretty good so far, but that's just the intro. The gospel's only good news when you recognize the reality of the fact that without Jesus, you stand at enmity with God. You're an enemy of God, not his child, right? Peter pulls no punches. This had to have been tremendously awkward for them. He does it five times. He says, you, it's an emphatic you, you delivered him over. You, you people denied him, right? And if you're sitting there, you asked for a murderer instead. We know the story from the Gospels. You killed the author of life. You acted in ignorance. This is a tough way to start a sermon. But from Jesus to the apostles, as you go through, we talked about this at the intro to Acts, there's a, a boldness in preaching against sin because there was a strong recognition about what's at stake all of eternity. Stand forgiven in Jesus Christ, in his righteousness, or you have eternal death. All eternity hangs in the balance. So they were bold. We live in a world that's actually embroiled in rebellion. It embraces all types of sin, celebrates it, promotes it. You can't get away from it. And actually, the church today largely stays silent, too worried that by proclaiming God's word, by proclaiming his truth, somehow you'll offend the sinner. But they have to recognize there's only one way. The model from the beginning was to confront sin because there is forgiveness available, but forgiveness only available if one will recognize it, turn away from it, turn to Jesus Christ to be reconciled, to be abundantly forgiven, to live under the cloak of his righteousness because we have none of our own. The message is hard, but it's promising. It's simple, it's sometimes difficult to deliver and accept, but Peter dives headlong into it. And remember who he's speaking to. He's, this may not resonate as well with us if Peter stood here today and used the same language. He's speaking to religious Jews in Jerusalem where Jesus was crucified just a few months before. And given the audience, Peter begins to make his case. He's leading up to salvation, to repentance, and he uses a variety of titles for Jesus that they would all recognize. The first uh, it was Jesus, his name. It's the most common title for the Christ, right? It's, we know it. He says, Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. We know Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua, which means the Lord is salvation. And we all know the text well at this point, what the angel said to Joseph. He said, Mary will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. That is why he is coming. His name is Jesus solely because he is our Savior. Solely because he is our Savior. He said he is the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. But everyone can come. Through, though God glorified him, the people have rejected him. And Peter would attack that. John says he came to his own, his own people did not receive him. But worse than just not receiving him, they were defiant in their unbelief and rejection. That's what Peter points out here. We know from the Gospels, Luke writes it this way in verse, chapter 23. Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. I find no guilt in Jesus. No less than six times in the Gospels, we find Pilate declaring Jesus' innocence. And even Pilate's wife sent him a message saying, have nothing to do with that righteous man. So Peter is confronting this crowd with the gravity of their sin. They denied the only one who could save them. And instead of crying out for mercy, they cried out for his crucifixion. Now, why does he start there? That seems brutal to me. It's because 
Only those people who can see that they're sinners will understand their need for a savior. Only those who start to see sin as an ugly rebellion against God will see the absolute beauty of the work of Jesus, the grace that God extends to us through him. Peter doesn't stop there with just one example. Verse 14, he says, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life. Now, holy one was also a common designation for the Messiah. You remember through the gospels, the demons, when Jesus would confront them, they would say, I know who you are, the holy one of God. And after one of his most difficult sermons in John chapter 6, where we're told that many of Jesus' disciples and followers left him, the 12 disciples profess their faith saying, we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. You are the Christ because he is holy and he is righteous and he is perfect and he is innocent of any transgression or sin. And it again Peter, like, I'm going to the New Testament. Peter's going to the Old Testament here. He's again alluding to Isaiah, where God said, the righteous one, my servant. The righteous one, my servant. He shall make many to be accounted righteous because he shall bear their sins. It will be him that delivers. Now, instead of bowing before the perfect, holy, righteous son of God in the flesh, the people we know asked instead for a murderer to be freed, Barabbas. And that is just a sign of the insanity that denying God brings about. It's really a great paradox that Peter is laying out here for these people. He's saying to them, so much do you loathe, do you hate the idea of turning from your sin and trusting in and following and obeying Christ that you would ask for a murderer and you killed the author of life? It's a terrible paradox. And we know that Jesus is indeed the author of life. He's the founder, the ruler of life. Colossians says he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Now Peter is referring to him as the author of life, but he's not really referring to the work of creation here. That is true about Jesus, but he's actually pointing to the person and work of Jesus Christ in that he makes the spiritually dead alive. He is truly the author of life, eternal life. Ephesians 2 puts it this way, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Notice it's written to Christians. This is past tense. You were dead in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. He is the author of life. We are saved by faith in Jesus. And scripture affirms that Jesus is the author, the founder, the perfecter of our faith. Hebrews 12 tells us that. So to deny Jesus his rightful place as the center of our affections, the Lord whom we long to serve and worship, Peter's saying it's to choose to reject the free offer of salvation by grace and pursue death instead. We know scripture tells us the wages of sin is death, but juxtaposed with that it says the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
And Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Now, Jesus was declaring the truth. He is the source of life, eternal life. And though he was speaking to Martha in that passage, he is really speaking to you and to me and to the world when he says, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Do you believe it or will you deny this truth? Will you reject sin and flee from your past and be cleansed by the righteousness of Christ and stand forgiven? Will you grab hold of life in Christ? Now that crowd had gathered, you remember, because of a miracle. And you remember from last week, that was a creation miracle. This man had been lame from birth for 40 years. That means there's no mental synapses for what it means to stand and walk. There's no muscles developed. There's no tendons. You know when a person has an accident, they've got to go through physical therapy to relearn this. He doesn't have any of that. But immediately, everything was created new by the person and work of Jesus Christ. And he stood and he leapt and he praised God for it. It was a picture of how the author of life grants new life to those who follow him. Peter had an object lesson standing right with him when he made this sermon. God doesn't always heal, but he always provides something better, which is eternal life, freedom from the bondage of sin and rebellion, forgiveness instead of guilt, a new life, a new start in Christ. And it is here, after pointing out the sin, that Peter begins to transition toward the promise, and he proclaims the best part, the resurrection. He says, you killed him, you killed the author of life, but God. God raised him from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Now this is the vindication. This is the glorification to which Peter alluded to in verse 13. He's saying, man may reject Christ, but God lifts him up on high as the name above all names. He will say later, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Verse 16, he says, in his name, by faith in his name has made this man strong whom you see and know and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Faith in his name. Whose faith is at issue here? You think that as you read that text? Whose faith? I'd say it's multifaceted. First off, it's actually Peter and John's faith. They were nothing but Galilean fishermen. They weren't born with some sort of special ability or power or knowledge. They had no divine power. They didn't walk around with a gift of healing except as the Holy Spirit gave them that. But they walked in obedience to Christ. And it is the risen and living Christ who continued to work through his apostles to demonstrate to the world that they spoke for God. And then we do so today by proclaiming his word. Because we're told in Ephesians, the church was established on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So we're doing the same thing. But second, it was the faith in the person and work of Jesus, the name of Jesus, that was required of the man. And we went through that at length last week. Jesus' name is not a magic spell that we can say. I wish it was. It would have been helpful this week. But Jesus chose to heal this man And that healing didn't take place apart from his power. And the proclamation of Jesus Christ, who he is, what he has done to save, the fact that he is exalted at the Father's right hand, it is Jesus who makes this faith possible. And verses 17 and 18 are truly the transition point. And with these, we'll close this morning. You see, the worst sins of these people had been openly exposed. They were laid out boldly, directly. No one uh, could be 
in a state of misunderstanding what Peter said. And it couldn't even be glossed over because he didn't say it just once where they could look to somebody and say, did he just say, I don't know if he said that. No, he hit it three times, four times. And I find it amazing to, we don't know the answers to this, but what was the crowd's reaction? Were they standing there in stunned silence that this guy would say all of this as he pointed to Christ? Was it like the first sermon where they were cut to the heart and they cried out, what must we do to be saved? I suspect, just like today, that some packed up their stuff and left. I mean, looking for anything, something more motivational than this, something more soothing to the conscience. They had come to the temple not to have their sins called out. They had come to the temple so that they could look on the sacrifice of a lamb and then go their merry way. So I want you to see how Peter shifts this sermon in a loving way. Because he didn't ignore the confrontation with sin. But listen to the address in verse 17. He says, and now brothers. And now brothers. Remember how he began. He said, men of Israel. That is a much more generic address. But now by addressing them as brothers, Peter is identifying with them. He is a fellow Jew. He is placing himself on their level. There's nothing unique about him. He's able to say, I was once exactly where you are. I was lost, but now I'm found. And I I want you to see that because that is how we must approach people no matter what their past is, no matter what their past sin, no matter what sin they are actually caught up in today, embroiled in in the presence. We should be able to do that because nobody should be more aware of the saving grace and mercy of God in Jesus Christ than a Christian. We should be more aware of that than anyone. Because we have experienced the forgiveness and the newness of life and God's grace by repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Peter's soon going to call for a response. He will call them to repentance. But before he gets there, he connects with this crowd who has lived in denial of Jesus, the holy and righteous one, the author of life, right? God's raised him from the grave. He's ascended into heaven. He's at the Father's right hand. But Peter is uniquely gifted, just as we all are, to make this connection. Peter knew that there could be forgiveness even for rejecting Jesus Christ, even when he gave in to the pressures of the world. He definitely knew it. He denied Jesus three times on the night of his arrest. I want to read that account in Luke 22. Then a servant girl, lowly in those times, would not get the attention of most. Seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at Peter said, this man also was with Jesus. But he denied it, saying, woman, I do not know him. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, he had plenty of time to think about it. Still another insisted, saying, certainly this man also was with him, for he too too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you'll deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Peter got three chances, spread over time. Three chances to get it right, and he failed every single time. And I cannot imagine the pain of staring Jesus in the eyes after that third time. Really, after the first time. Thankfully, that doesn't happen to us. It was a knowing denial of Jesus Christ. And yet Jesus forgave. Jesus restored him. 
Jesus called Peter into loving fellowship with him, despite all of his failures. John 21 tells that story of the restoration, and it ends simply with a command that's issued twice to Peter. Peter professes his love for Jesus, and Jesus simply commands Peter, then follow me. Then follow me. Trust me, listen to me, obey me, right? Follow me. And that is what Peter's doing, but he knows the mercy of God. So he's bold. He knows that there's no turning to Christ without an acknowledgement of sin and turning away from it and looking to Jesus for forgiveness, but he knows that forgiveness is abundantly available by faith in Jesus. No matter the sin, he will not turn away a repentant sinner who comes to him in faith. He says, and now brothers, I know you acted in ignorance as did your rulers. He's softening it up a little bit here. Ignorance is no defense. We're guilty before God for our sins. They remained guilty for theirs. He had just called them out. They remained guilty of their denial of Jesus. But he's opening the door. He's showing them the door is open. It's open to us. It's open to them. And Jesus is that door to life. So Peter is shifting here toward the promise. And that promise is that we can turn to a perfectly faithful, just God. We can look to Christ who promises that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1.9. Only Jesus stands as a mediator between God and man, forgiving sins, cloaking us with righteousness if we will come to him in faith. How is that possible? Because as Peter says in verse 18, making the final transition, what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. He fulfilled it. He died for the sins of everyone who will turn to him in faith. And Jesus made that prayer before his arrest. He said, Father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. That work was to fulfill the law in perfect obedience on our behalf, because we haven't. The work was to go to the cross And drink the full cup of God's wrath that we deserve. That work resulted in the victorious resurrection from the grave after atoning for the sins of the people who will follow him. And that work is sufficient to remove all of our guilt, to wipe our slate clean, to save everyone who will turn to Jesus and follow him as Lord of lords. Peter was speaking to an audience that had a big problem. So do we, so does the world. But the solution has always remained the same. It is fulfilled in the promise of Jesus Christ, who simply says, repent and believe and I will give you life. And then he asks, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Will you follow the Lord Jesus Christ now and into a glorious eternity with him? Will you follow him? Will you tell the world? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Oh, what a wonderful promise you have given us. Lord, you know that that work of your Spirit in convicting us of our sins, both to draw us to Christ for salvation, but also to continue that work in us lifelong as we are sanctified and conformed to the image of Jesus, is a painful one for us. Painful in part, Lord, because we don't fully grasp the rebellion that sin is against you the grief it causes. So Lord, we pray that you would continue to work in our hearts, that you draw us 
ever near to the grace and mercy of Jesus, that we would flee from other concerns and trust in him, that we would see his beauty, that we'd we'd see that though we live in a sinful world, there's a promise of salvation that is right within everyone's grasp. God, give us the boldness to speak as your apostles did, to stand for your righteousness, to stand for your holiness, to feel offense against our God when people offend him, but to speak truth in love, calling them to recognize that he is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, with all power in heaven and on earth, and calling men and women to turn to him, to trust Jesus. Lord, we're thankful for his promise that whoever comes, he will never cast out. Lord, give us the constant assurance that we walk in the loving arms of our Savior and the courage to take that message to the world. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.